It's time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. Good evening and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. This evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And today is Sunday, March the 19th, 2023, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live from beautiful Austin, Texas. And we have another great program in store for you today. And of course, Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here to make the show run smoothly. In a little while after the break, we'll be joined once again by Zen Buddhist monk, Vietnam veteran, and founder of the Zalto Foundation, Claude Anshin Thomas. And Claude's been on the show several times to talk about finding peace within and around us, even during times of war. And when he was last on the show, just about a year ago, soon after Ukraine was invaded, he told us he was headed to that part of the world for a humanitarian effort. So he's back to join us today to fill us in on where he was, what he did, what it was like, and how to create peace, again, within and without, while wars rage on. And then later in the program, I'll continue the discussion of living with passion and caregiving in this new normal. And after the show, you can hear this evening's program again by going to my website, and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight, along with any website links that are given on the program. Um, And you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to blogtalkradio.com slash yourgoldenears, and you can also find it on Apple Podcasts. For information from this show and from previous programs, to listen to all of the previous programs and get all the links uh, for the websites that were discussed on those programs, go to my website, drmaracarpel.com. You can also hear all of the shows that we have done with Blog Talk Radio for the last nine years plus by going directly to blogtalkradio.com slash yourgoldenyears, and all of those podcasts are also on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, for upcoming programs and events. This program is produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by amightygoodtime.com. Wondering what to do to reconnect with others after you're 50? How about having a mighty good time? It's free to search, free to post, and much more. Whether it's in person or virtual, anything can be found to fill your day with connection with others. So be more active and start connecting again. Go to amightygoodtime.com. That's amightygoodtime.com. All right, so we're going to take a brief break so that we can play some of our other sponsors' commercials, but it will be very brief, so don't go anywhere, and we'll be back right after those commercials with... Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. 
Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy. Protect your personal information. And look for any suspicious activity for more information or to report fraud. Call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Cartel and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpel.com. And now joining us on the phone once again, we have Zen Buddhist monk and Vietnam veteran, as well as founder of the Zalto Foundation, Claude Anshin Thomas. Welcome back, Claude. Thank you. It's really nice to hear your voice. It's nice to hear your voice. I'm so glad that you're back and you're safe and sound. Um, It was a year ago that you were on the program and you were talking about going over to Eastern Europe to help with the Ukrainian refugees. Um, And I'm thank you for coming back on to talk about that. So. Can you let us know where you were and what was happening over there? Um, Because of my vows, I'm not permitted to go to any one particular place without an invitation. And so um, the way this whole process unfolded, now the Zolto Foundation also has an arm in Europe, um, the sister organization. the sister organization is uh, centered in uh, Germany, Hungary, and Italy. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things we set out to do immediately was um, to two things. One, um, within the, the membership of the Zalto Foundation in Europe, to identify people who were willing to host refugees and refugee families. Um, the other thing was to identify um, people who could speak either Russian or Ukrainian to support translation. Um, we also then um, identified sources of transportation so that we could help facilitate people getting out of the Ukraine and into um, a safe haven in one European country or another. Um, we're quite successful at that. We additionally, um, mm. through the hosting process, Uh, what we were able to do is we were able to identify some Ukrainian uh, helping professionals, um, counselors, psychologists, and we we established um, via a virtual network, we established um, a network of, of these helping professionals who then could reach out and support people in the Ukraine itself and in the various countries where refugees were uh, relocating to. Um, that started off with two people doing that work, and it has extended, extended far beyond that. What we do as a foundation is to pro- provide them with the necessary um, 
the necessary infrastructure so that they can uh, fulfill this commitment. Um, mm-hmm. We also have identified people in the various countries where refugees are settling that could support the Ukrainian refugees in navigating the bureaucratic hurdles that they were um, having to deal with to get housing, to get care, um, to get um, training and language, uh, to get a job training and language training, and then to um, get, per- get their more, uh, more stable pos- uh, permissions to stay. Uh, and, 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 and along that, and through these efforts, we also then uh, created a network. Well, we created a network and then identified other networks that we could interface with where we could uh, get uh, food and uh, we could get um, clothing and we could also get um, furniture and things for the places that these people were moving into. Um, mm-hmm. and also, I was contacted by um, I was contacted by a Russian. Um, a native Russian, Canadian person, and studying in Dusseldorf, Germany. And there were a number of, uh, there were a number of Russian expatriates, Ukrainian expatriates, and refugees, and they were searching for a way to navigate the complexities now of their relationship. And so they asked me if I would address, mm. if I would address a group of these, of these, um, a mixed group, this mixed group of people, um, I said, absolutely, I would. Um, uh, I met with a, um, a moderate-sized group in, in Dusseldorf, and as a result of that initial meeting and, and my addressing the topics of war, violence, interconnectedness, and, and taking responsibility for our own feelings and not creating enemies and that sorts of things, an ongoing group has been uh, a group grew out of that and has expanded far beyond their wildest expectations where mm-hmm. now Ukrainian and Russian people are supporting each other and wow. instead of uh, within within the expatriate and and, and uh, refugee community and it's it's really quite helpful to both both of these groups because they they share a lot in common yeah, aren't uh, you know a, a lot of Russians and Ukrainians are related to each other, in fact, um, right? Well, yes, I would say on the in the border sections that this would be more true than if you go deeper inland. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, they, they um, many Ukrainians also speak Russian, and many uh, I would say along the border regions, um, a lot of the Russians also speak Ukrainian. Mhm. Mhm. So culturally, they share a lot. Um, and socially, socially, they share quite a bit. And um, from a language perspective, they can also communicate to one another. Right. I am going right. back. I'm going back the first of May. Okay. How long were you there um, the first time? Um, I was there for. Three months in person, and then I've maintained a consistent presence there virtually. Um, uh-huh. And I will be there this year. I would be there for two months, uh, two months and a little bit. 
from May till the first week of July, and then I'll come back to the U.S. because I have some commitments here. Then I go back mid of September, and I'll be there till the mid of mid of November at least. Wow. Okay. And you were out. You weren't in Ukraine, though. You were outside. No, in... I have not yet mm-hmm. been invited. Um, so I have. Uh, um, I haven't gone into the country itself. Right. Okay. Huh. We, so, we do have so people, what, though, within, within, within this network we have created, we do have, mm-hmm. pe- we do have people who have family there, and they have been back and forth a couple of times. So we get a chance to have firsthand information about what's going on there, what the conditions are like, what living is like, and what we can do to be of support. So these people can carry, um, easily can carry whatever is needed in with them. Right. So what is it like there? What have they told you? Well, it it like for example, it, in different cities, it, it depends. It depends mm-hmm. on where you're at within the city itself. It depends on where the city's at in terms of actual heavy, uh, a heavy troop presence and ground fighting. Um, some of these cities are completely destroyed. Right. People are living in basements, and 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 some cities there is quite a bit destroyed, but. Um, there's quite a bit that has been untouched. Um, mm-hmm. but people are living, they're living uh, as if, they're making enough to live as if, as if there's no war, there's no fighting going on. And, right, and, right. And I, I understand the press to do that, um, but in the end, it, it, it doesn't serve them well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know if I mentioned it, much, but my sister-in-law is from Kiev. Um, oh, no, you didn't. Yeah, she moved here like 30 years ago, but she still has oh, yes. close friends over there. So, you know, she was in, she's been in touch with them, and and uh, for a while they were living in basements, and then as soon as the war moved slightly away from them, they were actually going to work every day. Some yes. of them were going to work and then living in the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm just, I'm just amazed. But I'm it's, amazed it's also that... true that. Go on. It's also true that during the fighting in uh, the former Yugoslavia in the Balkans, that mm-hmm. I was twice into the Balkans and also um, was into. Um, I got transported by the UNHCR armored personnel carrier into um, the Muslim side of the city of Mostar and um, was under fire there and and was looking at what's happening here, what can we do to be of support, if anything. And there, people were all living in basements, and it was was just intense. Um, mm-hmm. Not that they were living in tents, but that this experience was intense. And right. um, they're living in darkness down there. And it's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was hard. Uh, so what I can did only you imagine. See... Go on. Oh, please, go ahead. No, no, <laughs> no what were ahead. you going to say? No, I was, I was going to ask just... you. Yes. <laughs> we have a slight delay on, on here, yes, so it's understand. easy to talk over each other. <laughs> yeah. Please go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, what did you find with the people that you met? How were they? How were they dealing with all of this? 
Well, you know, it's it's difficult to say. I would say I would experience was it was an incredible amount of resilience. So my mm-hmm. first trip into the Balkans, um, you could just see people were food deprived and and you, they were just rough. And my second trip into the Balkans, um, the fighting had wasn't so direct in Mostar. Um, there had been a lot of of a lot of cessation of armed conflict, and people were coming out of the out of the basements. And one of the things that I learned, and this is also true, uh, it's true for the areas of heavy fighting in, in the Ukraine, that um, before I can really, before anyone can really connect with these people, their the basic needs need to be met, and food safety, shelter. Right. You know, one, one person, one uh, young woman who came out of the basement, all she wanted was some lipstick. And so we were, uh-huh. able to hustle her up some, we were able to hustle her up some lipstick, and she was, like, golden. Um, <laughs> and she, could then go, she could then sort of begin to navigate from there. Uh, so it's, it's to be able to really listen to these people and, and to the people in these circumstances and see what they need and 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 be willing to do whatever is necessary to support that, rather than coming in with a preconceived idea about what they need and then imposing that on people. Mhm. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, we see it. We see on TV. You know, whatever we, whatever they're able to capture on the news. Um, just uh, amazing resilience and and people who had very you know were doctors and entertainers musicians you know became soldiers so it's just you know it would be like you know if if new york was under siege (laughs) you know Um, well new york has been under siege right new york has been been yes but not in the same level no, not in no, the well, same let's way. say not in the same, not in the same, yeah, not to the same extent as let's say. Not to the same extent, right? Yeah. No, I lived in Bach New York during. Mariupol. Yeah, I lived there in New York during nine eleven, but you know that was a it was one day, <laughs> you know, um, and the aftermath of that one day it wasn't constant. You know, New Yorkers didn't have to turn into soldiers, so that that's a. That's a big difference. Yes, it's true. Mhm, mhm. Um, so, you know, you know, this is this is ongoing, and um, you know, I don't, I don't. Do you see an end in sight? <laughs> but what I what I've experienced in the duration of my current lifespan is that all fighting that has this beginning, also at some point, the, the fighting has a cessation point. When that is, I have no idea. How it occurs, I, I don't have any way to speculate. And I, I actually, I wouldn't even venture to do that. And mm-hmm. I, what I see is my primary responsibility and opportunity is to... Um, meet the reality of what's happening and 
be able to support the people who are caught up in the fighting in ways in which they tell us that they need support. And, and sometimes the way they tell us is not necessarily asking for a tube of lipstick. And they communicate in other sorts of ways. You can, and some of them are quite un, are unspoken. Plus, the Ukrainians we the Ukrainians that we have or that we know or have contact with who are going into the country regularly bring that information back to us. That that real time information. I, I know that the I I really applaud the courage of the um, reporters who are in the Ukraine in in doing the fighting. But I also know mm-hmm. from my own personal experience in war and how that, that the, the media presented that, that you get a particular angle of perception about what's going on depending on who's producing the piece. And, and I'm, I'm more interested in real time what's going on and mm-hmm. how can you be of support. Right, right. Um. So I'm, I'm curious about, you know, what kind of work that you've done with the, this group of people that you're helping to be able to have relationships with each other, that, that mixed group that you described of Russians well, and Ukrainians. Sure. Es- essentially, and I, essentially, I just initially just did a talk. And so I, I, I talked about the sorts of things that are, are relevant, that I feel are relevant to present publicly. Um, they're at the foundation of, of Zen practice for me. Um, first, I let them know what my own history is so that I know about war and violence. I also know that I was, um, that I was quite seriously injured, so I, I understand the real mm-hmm. cost of war. I, I've experienced it personally, witnessed it, witnessed, it, witnessed it, and been a perpetrator of it. Um, mm-hmm so that I'm not ignorant about this topic. I, I don't know what their experience is, and I want them, I, I wanted to create the circumstance where they would be, give them a, a, a practice, or found, give them a, a structure where they could begin to talk to one another. And, and, and within, the, within the, the retreats that I facilitate, meditation retreats that I facilitate, one of the things that I communicate, and it's, it's so incredibly important, that meditation and daily life are not two things. Meditation isn't just a sitting in repose in a chair or on a cushion or something and trying to attain some state of imaginary state of bliss. Um, um, meditation and daily life are not two things. So what I do is I, within the context of a, of a retreat that I facilitate, I take regular daily life functions and I uh, demonstrate them and teach them as meditation practices. The root form is sitting. So it's incumbent upon people, if they really want to wake up to, to roots of war, violence, and suffering in themselves, because that's where the roots of war are, um, mm-hmm. a disciplined, committed, sustained sitting practice is important. Five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening. Then I teach uh, work as a form of meditation, eating as a form of meditation. Um, I teach also speaking and listening as a form of meditation. So it's a very structured practice. Uh, One speaks, the others listen. 
There is no cross-talking. Mm-hmm. There's no discussion. There's no commenting. One speaks, the rest listens. And, and there's some structure in how that takes place. And what I did is I introduced that practice to this group of people. And there were a couple of people within that group who then grabbed onto that. Um, they came to a retreat that I was facilitating um, later in in Germany, and they actually experienced that practice. They also um, read about that practice in the first book I've had published at Hell's Gate, where I outlined that practice. And then they brought that into this into this fledgling group that was just beginning to take place. And now there's like, I don't know, they said 30 to 50 people who meet regularly. Wow. They meet regularly. They meet regularly. They have a, they have a short time where they sit in silence, connecting with their breath. And then they have a, a period of deep listening and mindful speech um, where mm-hmm. they, they break up into smaller groups. They follow the structure that was passed on to them. Um, in the way in which works for them. Um, they also uh, then practice working meditation, so they take care of the place where that's been provided for them to meet, so they leave it as if they were never there. Um, in this tradition, they call it leaving no traces. And uh-huh. so this is, once I pass these things on, then it's, then it's incumbent upon the people who, who receive them to work with them as it seems fit, as it, as it fits their particular circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it seems that, you know, if they're able to do that, then over here where we're not in the middle of a war zone and don't have our family in a war zone, we should be able to, <laughs> we should be able to find peace with each other. Um, what are, what are some of the, the, the takeaways that we can get from that? over here in the United States? Well, what I always, one of the things that I always emphasize is that you really have to want to live differently. If you don't want to live differently, then nothing's going to work. You have to Mm. be willing to, you have to really be willing to listen. And if we're talking and you're, let's say we're, we're engaged in a conversation, you're talking, and I'm already formulating a response to what you're saying. I'm not listening to you. And, and so it's important to really stress these kinds of realities so that people can begin to realize what distracts them from really listening to one another. But they have to want to listen to one another. Um, and the angel's saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Now, what mm-hmm. I say, is that you can lead a horse to water. You can't make it drink, but you can make it thirsty. And, and so my, yeah, so my hope is, the reason that I, I'm committed to doing the things that I do is that my hope is that um, one by one, person by person, people begin to develop the thirst that you're talking about, that the willingness to live in harmony, where we find a place where we connect, not where we're different. And then we're able to respect our own, each other's differences. Um, mm-hmm. notion yeah. of, the notion of respect is that we, we sort of all agree on the same thing. Is, is, it, it's ludicrous. And, and if I'm only associating with people who agree with me, then I'm becoming stagnant, 
narrow-minded and my world gets really small. Mm-hmm. I don't want to live like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems these days that, you know, even people who you think you agree on the on the big topics with, um, you end up finding other things to disagree <laughs> disagree on and and cut them off. You know, people who thought they were in agreement were on the same side and then something, you know, other issues come up and they disagree on those issues, even if the issues, you know, even if the disagreement is, disagreement is minor, it feels huge and people splinter off. So they end up being completely isolated. Yes, and it's sad. Now, mm-hmm. you did mention that we, we in this country, are not experiencing a war at this point in time. And I think if we broaden the, if we broaden the concept, if we broaden our sort of association with the reality of war, um, if we don't see just what's happening in Ukraine or in, in the other 35 countries where an active military engagement is taking place, we get mm-hmm. to see that there, we get to see the war that's already being fought in this country. Um, I mean, it's, it's like almost, we get almost every week or two or three times a week, we read about mass, mass killings. Yeah. And people, the, the, the idea that you resolve conflict with, at the point of a weapon, stabbing and killing, a bombing, it's like, it's, it's heartbreaking for me. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. Um, I'm for me to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, I'm I'm unwaveringly committed to the tenets of active nonviolence. I am not a pacifist. Active nonviolence tells me that I have the capacity in any given moment to act violently. I make a conscious choice not to. Mm-hmm. Violence even when it appears to work, doesn't really work. It only keeps the cycle of war, violence, and suffering alive. Right. Right. I don't have any enemies today. Well, let's say right now I don't have any. Uh-huh. Five minutes from now, who knows? Right. Okay. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. So... So what are some ways that listeners can can help in creating, uh, I guess, more peace in the world and creating and creating a safe environment for people who are escaping from active war zones? And I don't know, it's a big question, but are there practical things that listeners can do? Well, the, um, the first thing. And I think the most important thing is that to give up any preconceived notion of what peace is. Because if I have formulated some intellectual idea of what peace is, and, and I attempt to get the world to conform to that, I'm simply creating more suffering. Peace doesn't have a fixed, a fixed definition. You describe the situation. We... We seem to be on the same page. Then something little pops up that we disagree about, and the next thing you know, the relationship is cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, 
false notion that it's a false sort of conception of what peace is or what the circumstances that have to exist for peace to exist. I have a I have a very close friend, um, someone whom I I've known for quite quite a number of years, who is um, a, a rather committed conspiracy theorist, mm. and mm-hmm. and yet we still maintain a relationship. Um, it's important to me to maintain a relationship with him, but what I was able to establish with him is say, look, we probably have quite some different views about certain things. So what I'd rather do is rather than have you try to convince me of your position, um, I would just say, let's see where we connect. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on really where we connect and value the number of years that we have been connected and, and just go from that point. And uh, mm. so first and most important, a person has to want to experience peace. And to do that, we have to be willing to wake up to the roots of war, violence, and suffering in in us. We Mm -hmm. all possess that. We are not free of that. And if we think we are, we're deluded. Yep. Yep. I I don't know. When I was on your show last, had had the the new book, my new book, been published yet? Which, Which one was that? Bringing Meditation to Life, 108 Teachings on the Path of Zen Practice. Yes, I believe I believe we talked about it on one of the shows. Okay, good. I couldn't mm-hmm. remember. Do you mind if I read an excerpt from that short one? Sure, please, go ahead. It's about active nonviolence. It's on page 157. Many people continue to believe that in certain circumstances, we should kill to prevent further killing. My hope is to help people to discover what a terribly dangerous argument this is. This very argument has been used to justify preemptive strikes, to maintain a nuclear arsenal that could destroy the planet many times over, to uphold the death penalty. I know unwaveringly that violence is never the solution to humanity's problems and that the real solution resides in the ethic and value of active nonviolence. Active nonviolence means that I'm aware that in any given situation I have the capacity to act violently, but that I have a commitment not to succumb to my conditioning, not to succumb to my sense of helplessness that leads me again and again, either actively or passively, to support the use of violence to resolve conflicts. Active nonviolence means strongly standing up for truth and compassion in the midst of conflict and confrontation without aggression. Mm-hmm. If people I love want that. to know, thank you. If people want mm-hmm. to know more, um, they can. People can reach out to, to us here at the Zalto Foundation. Um, I think you post the website. Do you? Yes, but um, for the listeners, can you can you tell them the the link to that? Sure, absolutely. Um, if people are interested in contacting us or knowing more about the Zolto Foundation, they can dial in to www.zolto.org. Zolto is spelled Z as in zebra, A as in alpha, L as in lima, T as in tango, H as in hotel, O as in Oscar. That's Z-A-L-P-H-O, Zolto.org. And you see, I still use uh, the military phonetic alphabet. Alphabet. 
<laughs> so, and can people find your books on that website as well? Yes, they can find the they can find the books on that website also uh, Amazon and some of the other places where you can where books are listed you can find them there. Um, and there will also there are also two books that are in the near to publication two more. Oh, great! Uh, practice, yeah, practice and discipline for daily life, and and then uh, on the edges of sleep. Okay, so I'm gonna, uh, as you said, I do I do post this on my website, so listeners can go and and to my website, and it'll be there, and they can click on it. Um, but you know, let me know when your other books come out because I'd love to have you back and talk about them. Well, I, I must say it would be a pleasure to be on your show. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity, and I, I really like the conversations that we that develop through our, our interactions. It's I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thank you so much for for coming on the program so often, and I'm so glad that. Um, you're back safe and and stay safe when you go back to Eastern Europe and and keep keep me updated. I absolutely okay. will. I will. All right, and I look forward to having you back on the program. And um, definitely, when your book comes out, the next book, I'd love to have you back. Thank you. So, uh, okay. Dr. Carpell, I I place my hands together and and I bow to you in gratitude. And uh, am I allowed to? Am I allowed to give you an over the over the air hug? Sure. <laughs> okay, so this is an over the air over the air hug for you. Okay. Thank Same you. Same here. Thank you so right. much. And you welcome. have a very good you have a very good evening. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much. And, right. and again, for the the opportunity to be on your show, I I, I really I bow to you. I can't thank you enough. And for the work. Okay. That you do. Well, thank you as well. Yep. All right. Okay. Bye-bye now. Yep. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to take a brief break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Dr. Mara's book, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age, is now available on Kindle and in paperback at Amazon. Don't forget to listen to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years live from Austin, Texas, every Sunday on blogtalkradio.com. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpell.com. All right, and we are back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpell.com. And that was just really, really lovely, and I have a big smile on my face, and I'm so I'm so glad that um, Claude bringing his peace, his active um, nonviolence and peacefulness over to uh, uh, here <laughs> where we really need it um, every day, as well as over to a war zone where people are really struggling. Um, the refugees are really trying to get back to living a life. So, um, and I'm so glad that he comes 
onto this show so often to talk about this topic that is just, I just is one of my passions. So, um, and I, I want to talk, uh, continue in my discussion that I've been having here about um, the new normal, so to speak, after uh, three years of COVID and COVID isn't, isn't gone, it's still with us. Um, and and caregiving and finding passion while we're caregiving. And I and I mentioned last time that um, when we're called to do something, when we have a loved one who needs our help, for example, a loved one who goes into a long-term care community or a nursing home, um, that that can be a very stressful event for us, but we can turn that into a passion, that we're being called to to help to be there to advocate and create a better quality of life for a loved one. Just like Claude is called to go to where people are um, struggling, escaping from a war zone. So, you know, Finding our passion isn't all about doing what we find fun. Um, we can develop a love for what we're doing, even when it's not something that's quote unquote fun. Um, and so, you know, helping our loved ones in a nursing home, um, very often we feel powerless. Our, our loved one, our parent, our, our sibling, our spouse, um, whoever that person is, goes into a nursing home because they require um, more care than can be given at home or even in an assisted living community, that they need more nursing care um, that's not able to be provided in another form of living, or maybe they can't afford to live in assisted living or independent living because it's just extremely expensive. While a nursing home, um, you can go on Medicaid at some point when your money runs out and still get the care, not be kicked out. Um, and we often feel helpless. We feel like they're now under the control of this nursing home. And some nursing homes are very good, provide excellent care, some nursing homes, not so much. I've worked in many nursing homes, large nursing homes in the New York area, as well as small nursing homes, both in the Austin area, Central Texas, and in South Texas near near the border. Um, and I've come across nursing facilities that are excellent and some that are not so great. And even the, the best nursing facilities um, there's always room for improvement. And it's hard to see our loved one um, under the control of the staff of these communities when we feel that we, we know what they, what they need, what they want. We've known them our whole lives, perhaps, and we know what they want. And we want to advocate for them, and we don't know how to do that. So my own mom is in a nursing home and I had that feeling like how am I going to get her what I know that she wants in a community where there are certain 
they they run by their own rules and and it's an excellent facility that she's in but they have their own rules that aren't necessarily in alignment with what is needed for her quality of life so as i mentioned last time i had the idea of starting a family council there had been a family council in her community but because of covid and poor turnout I'm not sure which one happened first. Um, the the um, family council was discontinued, but now family councils are virtual, which works for me because I live in Texas and my mother is in a facility in Connecticut. Um, and there are many families like that where the family members live in another state. And so going, attending a family council is just not possible in person. And now with, um, you know, the people feeling unsafe because of the COVID still being an issue, um, many people don't want to go in person for that reason, even if they live nearby. So a virtual family council is very doable and probably even better. You can make it at night um, after family members who work get out of work and they can zoom in from from their own home. So last time I talked about all of the benefits of having a family council, an active family council within a community. It can, as I mentioned, it can be a supportive network where the family members support each other because it's so stressful um, dealing with the both the navigating the nursing facility and also whatever um, physical or or cognitive issues caused our loved one to have to live in the nursing facility. Um, it's an opportunity to share information, um, to share resources, um, to come up with practical ideas to improve our loved one's quality of life and then bring it to the administration of the facility. So the way that it works with a family council is that it's, it's member run. So there are no staff members at a meeting um, until the, the members of the meeting invite specific staff members. So they might invite the head of nursing to for one meeting to discuss issues going on in the nursing department. They might invite the recreation um, director. They might invite the administrator of the whole gut issues, come up, maybe problem solve together on specific issues. So the family council has an opportunity to, to speak as one voice, to come up with a plan of what issues need to be addressed, as well as to, um, improve relationships between family members and staff, especially the care, the hands-on caregivers. So family councils can actually um, do things to show appreciation, work together to have some sort of appreciation for the staff. Um, but it's, this is not an easy undertaking as I have determined in my um, getting this my effort to get this family council off the ground. Um, one of the things that that is really important 
um, is to understand that the family council is actually um, protected by law. So um, there is a law, and I'm, I'm looking for it right now, there is a law that states that the, um, here we go, the right of family councils in nursing homes. The 1987, this law has been around since 1987. It's called the Nursing Home Reform Act, and it guarantees the families of nursing home residents a number of important rights to enhance a loved one's nursing home experience and to improve facility-wide services and conditions. Key among these rights is the right to form and hold regular private meetings of an organized group called a family council. Facilities certified for Medicare and Medicaid must provide a meeting space. Now, now that um, many are doing this virtually, there is no meeting space that needs we, the family council that I'm working to put together. We don't need a meeting space. Um, but the facility, if asked, must provide an actual platform, like a Zoom platform. But I, at least to start off, I'm doing this on, I happen to have a Zoom platform for work, so I'm doing it on my Zoom platform. But the facility must cooperate with the council's activities and respond to the group's concerns. So that means that if we have concerns that we want to discuss with the director or the director of nursing or the director of recreation that it's taken seriously, that they must come plan a meeting where they can come and discuss the issues and um, actually follow through on practical um, solutions to any kind of problem. So, Nursing facilities, again, in this law, nursing facilities must ask advisors. See, I'm just learning this right now. Nursing facilities must appoint a staff advisor or liaison to the family council, but staff and administrators have access to council meetings only by invitation. While the federal law specifically references families of residents, Close friends of residents can and should be encouraged to play an active role in family councils too. So it's not just for um, families. It many people in in nursing facilities um, have close friends who are the ones who advocate for them rather than family members. So they are they are welcome to come to family council meetings. <clears throat> Um, specifically, the federal law includes the following requirements on family councils. A resident's family has the right to meet in the facility with the families of other residents in the facility. The facility must provide a family group if one exists with private space. As I said, we're doing this virtually, so we don't need that. Staff or visitors may attend meetings at the group's invitation. The facility must provide a designated staff member responsible for providing assistance and responding to written requests that result from the group meeting. 
When a family group exists, the facility must listen to the views and act upon the grievances and recommendations of residents and families concerning proposed policy and operational decisions affecting resident care and life in the facility. So family council groups can be extremely powerful and extremely effective if you can get enough people to actually work together um, to, and to agree on basic issues. Getting it going can be difficult. We've run into a lot of obstacles. Not everybody is happy with the start of a family council, but um, within the state of Connecticut, I know that there is a statewide family council that is a liaison to the ombudsman program and they support the the forming of local family council groups in the facilities and i would i will do some more research into that but i believe that that is really the case in most every state in the united states that there is a uh, a statewide family council or the very least, I know that there is an ombudsman program in every state, and that is um, that is federally funded, so it is a requirement in every state. And they are to support the the forming of a family council. So if there is any resistance from the facility, the ombudsman is going to jump in and help. Um, but I, I really believe that it can be a very empowering group um, when you have a family council and coming up with solutions to issues that um, arise in a nursing facility that can help your family member can actually be a, uh, a work of passion. Okay, and um, it's not something, uh, you know, I know that the, that COVID has been used as an excuse to, um, to take away the power of family councils, but things have moved to the point where it is no longer an excuse because um, most people in nursing homes are vaccinated and we have treatments and there are um, there is a cost-benefit cost to, um, to everything. And so moving forward and getting, getting family, our loved ones active in social activities and, and getting together with other family members is really important and, and at this point is possible. But again, people have gotten really good at using Zoom and other online platforms so that um, family members can meet virtually and COVID has, cannot stop it. So on that note, next week I'll continue talking about some other issues that come up in uh, caregiving in this new normal and how it can be a positive experience rather than a very stressful experience or or one in which we feel helpless and hopeless.
All right. So I'll let you know now what um, next week, Sunday, March the 25th, we'll be back with another great program for you when teen and parent communication coach and best-selling author of How to Raise Respectful Parents, Better Communication Tips for Teen and Parent Relationships, Laura L. Regan returns to the show. Now, the last time Laura was on, she talked about becoming, she was becoming a grandparent. So this time she will be back to discuss passionate living as a grandparent now that she has had the experience as a grandmother for the past couple of years at this point. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from the show, get the links that we discussed on the program, go to my website. All of that will be posted later tonight, drmaricarpel.com. And you can also hear this evening's program in as soon as five minutes from now by going directly to blogtalkradio.com, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com, slash your golden years. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts in five minutes. For upcoming shows and events, follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Thank you to my guest, Claude Enshin Thomas, and thank you to Art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program. 